Welcome to episode number 102 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Megan Singleton, a practicing artist, educator, and mother located in St. Louis, Missouri. The investigation of ecological relationships within society and the landscape is the basis of her work. As an interdisciplinary artist, she creates work that resonates with the materiality and rhythms of the natural world. Her creative practice intertwines sculpture, handmade paper, found objects, photography, and book arts. Singleton received her MFA in sculpture from Louisiana State University and her BFA in photography from Webster University in St. Louis. She actively exhibits and was the recipient of the St. Louis Regional Arts Commission Artists Fellowship Grant the Smelser Valian Visiting Artist Fellowship in Taos, New Mexico, and has participated in artist residencies across the U.S. Enjoy our conversation. Megan Singleton, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank it's you a- for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking in this dead week between Christmas and New Year's, and thank you for coming on. Um really excited to hear more about your work with paper. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and uh, any artistic creative influences. Oh, um, yeah, my uh, growing up, my dad really liked to draw. Um, He and he was um, a general contractor. So um, there was a lot of just like playing and drawing and like making things. Um, so really, um, I mean, I was holding hammers at like four years old, you know, running around the house cause he had his own business. Um, oh. and so it was kind of like an around the clock kind of always, always around tools and wood and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so being a maker has kind kind of like always been in my family and in, I guess, in my genes. I just kind of took it in a different route. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where And where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. So I think probably when I was like nine or 10, I got my first camera from my grandmother for Christmas. And my background actually is in uh, photography before I fell in love with paper. Okay. Um, so my undergraduate degree um, is in photo. And then it was my last year of undergrad school is when I took my first paper making class. Um, but really, I, I still remember my little tiny teal uh Pan, I think it was like a Panasonic little c- c- camera that I had. So 35 millimeter film um, is when I really was like, ooh, like I like capturing images and, and looking at stuff in a different, you know, in a different way. Right, right. So where did you go to college? Uh, my undergrad, I went to Webster University um, here in St. Louis. And um, I, I started my first two years, I started in community college. Um, and then I, uh, 
um, I got a letter in the mail that invited me to do the study abroad program in Canterbury, England. And I was oh. like, hmm, I was like, that studying abroad sounds really great, but I don't know that I want to go to England. <laughs> um, so I started doing some research uh, and I found Santa Reparata um, School of Art, which is in Florence. Uh-huh. And they had accreditation through Columbia College. So in between um, going to transferring to Webster University, I studied a semester um, in Florence um, at Santa Reparata um, uh, and did a lot of photography, black and white, dark room. Um, uh-huh. And that's actually where I, I took my first digital imaging class, which is so that was back in 2003. Yeah, 2003 is like when I first started um, like learning Photoshop and and things like that. So so yeah, so then uh, I came back from Italy and then I got a transfer scholarship to go to, to Webster University. And um, and that's where I uh, I met Tom Lang, who was the head of the department there. And he was a papermaking instructor and um, a very um, positive mentor um, to me um, throughout the years. Um, and so that's where I kind of like, like got the paper bug. I was like, can I just transfer to be a papermaking major? But that didn't exist. And I was like in my last year. So. Um. Right. So you, you mentioned, so Webster, he was ahead of the department, the whole art department. Yes. So yeah. he's, uh, he's just recently retired um, mm-hmm. and he was head of the department, but also taught printmaking um, and papermaking. And okay. the, the um yeah we had i believe maybe it was 2013 the nafa previously friends of dart hunter meeting was in st louis and then we so we had some of the activities i mean events at webster university yeah yeah i came there i remember that and for some reason tom has connections with beatrix mapaladama in austria i i i knew about him prior to that oh yeah I've been over there as well yeah um so they do a uh they have a really strong exchange program in vienna uh okay. at webster university okay. through the art the, the art program takes some students over there but also it's i think it's more through their business school but um but i know yeah every he would go every summer um right or okay. every spring. i can't remember um mm-hmm. i didn't um do that program because i had just gone to, to italy um but yeah they have that and also thailand I think are there two main um, main exchange programs at the university. So when you um, took that paper making course, you said it was your senior year. What what kind of things were you exposed to, and did you integrate what you were already doing in any way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I ended up my work was a lot different um, than uh, so I guess yeah that would have been two thousand four two thousand five two thousand four. Yeah. So I think it was actually like the spring semester before my last year is when I took the paper making class. And so I was doing a lot of um, alternative process photography on top of um, papers that I was making. Um, and I was exploring different ways of uh, making watermarks um, with, with um, screen print emulsion um, and then just doing a little bit of um, plant fiber work. But I really hadn't kind of like fell in love with that part of paper making yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I that is when I like found high shrinkage Abaca. And that was like, I loved how wild and free it was when it would shrink up. And um, and so I, I was doing a lot of um, 
photography of like women and nature. And um, so I started doing these like free form, like paper dresses that would um, sort of like a metamorphosis kind of theme um, of like a skin coming off of these, of these women. Um, And so that kind of led me into um, thinking, I was also uh, working part-time as a um, wedding photographer and then doing like um, f- like freelance, like portrait photography for people as like a, um, for income mm-hmm. in college. And so, um, so I ended up started, I, I got this idea about taking used, um, linen clothing and then repulping it and making these really large sheets and then, um, cutting, uh, clothing patterns and like making clothing from paper clothing from recycled clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then doing, um, like accentuated like uh, pieces out of high shrinkage abaca that were you know adorning like these these linen because I would make like bed sheet size sprayed sheets of linen paper and then crumple them up. Um, I know there's a term for like kind of like um, uh, momogami. Mama, this starts with an M. It's a Japanese momogami. Thank you, <laughs> Mo- momogami. Yes. Um, so kind of that technique of softening the paper so it could be more wearable and more durable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then adding, sewing on these like different parts of, of Abaca, like embellishments on the outside. Um, and then, so that was my thesis work. And then I did a, a fashion photography shoot of like 12 different models wearing these, uh-huh. um, outfits. And then we had a, um, I'd also taken my first performance art, um, class at that time. And so I did, uh, we had a big performance art event, um, and so I did a big fashion show with all of the models. And so there was, um, it was really cool. It was like also the first time I collaborated with other people. So I worked with this, um, sound, um, student, a mu- a, someone in the music department. And so he had helped me set up a, um, a recording device on, during the fashion show. So there was this little like back room and the, um, the models would go back and like rustle their paper oh. in the microphone. And then he did like a live mix of like the rustling paper sounds oh. with some audio that he added for when they like walked down the runway later that night. So, um, right. so that ended up being sort of like how I incorporated the photography and like paper right. together for my undergrad. Right. And I want to mention here to listeners that your website is amazing with lots of images. It probably goes back all this way. I'm not sure if what you just described is on there, but there's lots more on her website than we're going to be able to talk about. And it's beautiful. So go Um, check it out. I think that I don't like I as I progressed in my art um, practice and our career, I started sort of categorizing my work by bodies of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think on my website, I can't even remember off the top of my head, there's a, a wearable section. And I yeah. think that earlier work is in the, in the wearable um, yeah. section. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you went to graduate school. Is that? Yeah. So I took some time off. Okay. Um, so after also in my like final year of undergrad, I um, I interned at a commercial photography studio because I was trying to figure out, you know, am I going to be a wedding photographer for the rest of my life? Am I going to be an artist? Like, what am I going to do? And so um, so I started and I did an internship at Bruton Stroby Studios, um, which is a commercial photography studio. And I was just a, an, a studio assistant, essentially doing lighting and, and moving 
equipment around. Um, but at the end of my internship, they actually um, they offered me a job. And so they just they wanted to expand their photo retouching department. And I had been doing, you know, some work for the um, wedding photographer I was working for doing like, you know, hand coloring or like black and white photo with a colored bouquet. And so I had some Photoshop um, experience, but I definitely was not like a master Photoshop um, expert. Um, and that's what they were looking for because they wanted to train somebody to work on their images in the way that they wanted them to be worked and not coming in with like, you know, right. some other practice that was established in someone's you know mind. Um, so I took the job, um, uh, cause I, I thought, well, I'll learn a new skill. And, um, that was, you know, uh, you know, almost 17 years ago and I still work for that company. Um, I'm still, you know, doing, um, professional, uh, photo retouching as my, um, as my day job. Um, uh-huh. but in between there, uh, so in 2000, I worked there until 2009 full time. And that's when, you know, the economy crashed. We all probably were impacted by that in 2009. And everyone took a 20% salary reduction. Um, and I had already been like getting the itch to wanting to like go to graduate school and get back, you know, at a stronger artist, getting back into like my art practice stronger and more, with more time. Um, so I decided I was going to leave then and pursue my graduate degree. Um, And so I got a teaching assistantship to um, LSU um, in Baton Rouge. And um, and in 2009, I I left um, with the stipulation that, um, you know, when the economy got better and things improved, like I would do um, freelance work for them if Uh they wanted to send me uh, send me work to do, uh, which they did, but it didn't happen until 2011 is how long it kind of took for everything to rebound. Um, well, but that so, must have dovetailed nicely with your graduate program, right? Yes. Yes. Very and, well. And it's, why did you choose LSU? Um, there were a couple of different reasons I chose LSU. Um, so I definitely, when I was looking at graduate schools, um, I, I had been doing a little bit of community teaching at Craft Alliance um, in St. Louis before I went to graduate school, and I enjoyed it. So I was looking at universities that had um, paper making facilities because that was very important to me, and there's not a ton of those, you know, around the country. Um, and then I was looking for like scholarship opportunities because mm-hmm. also I didn't like one of the biggest pieces of advice that someone gave me when I was applying for graduate schools is that you should be paid to go to graduate school and not pay to go to graduate school. They should, you know, they should want you to be there and be part of the community. Um, and so I kind of took that to heart. And I also wanted to live someplace unique and different. I mean, I had applied to like the University of Oregon. I was like, I was thinking more I wanted like mountains or ocean, but the bayou and the southern Louisiana landscape is unlike anything else um, Mm. in this country. So, um, so I'm very fortunate that that is kind of where I ended up. Yeah. And that's not a place that I've really heard of as a papermaking center. So tell me just a little bit about um the paper making facility and yeah it's it, still there yeah yeah it's still there and they've um so leslie Kopcho is the head of the printmaking department and she's an amazing um grant writer um amazing teacher as well um but she uh wrote 
a lot of grants over the years um, to acquire, um, they have a, a five pound Raina beater, a two pound mm-hmm. Raina beater, or maybe it's a seven pound, I think it's five pound Raina beater, the larger one. I can't remember, it's five or seven, but um, they have a, a four by eight foot uh, Lee McDonald vacuum table, um, an assortment of molds and decals, um, a, a Raina drying box, two Raina drying boxes, hydraulic presses. Um, it's really, I mean, it's an amazing facility. Yeah. 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 And I know that it's probably, it was, it was like all of this really expensive, really state-of-the-art court, state-of-the-art equipment in like this dilapidating building. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was like birds flying in and like roof leaking and like, you know, you had to like cover certain things. Um, But since then, they have renovated and moved the department. I haven't seen it since they okay. have done that. Um, but all of that equipment is is still there. Um, yeah. And so it was also really nice because I came in, um, I had gotten a Valley Beater in 2006. So I was like, even while I was working full time and not in school anymore, like I was still making work and working with paper. Okay. And um, one big thing that really changed to that really kind of pushed me into sculptural work um, and thinking, you know, maybe I really should go back to graduate school was I took a two week class at Penland in 2007 with Lynn Surrey's and oh. Gretchen Schirmerhorn was her assistant um, who's at Pyramid Atlantic. Um, right. And so that experience, it was, you know, learning all of these new sculptural techniques and the different things I could do with my beater at home. Um, it really kind of like elevated my like desire to want to just like make work all the time um, and be back in school because it was like this really intensive learning experience. Um, and so um, with all of that, like I came into LSU with a pretty high knowledge. I knew I wasn't going there to like learn more paper making because, you know, I came in with, you know, a, a able to teach the paper making course to undergraduate and graduate students, uh-huh. which is what I did okay. while I was there. Um, but I definitely, it was so much more about just the community and learning about grant writing and learning about how to talk about my work and just learning, you know, um, different aspects of, of how to be an artist professionally, I guess, you know, um, yeah. yeah. And, and what, so what department was paper making in? What is your degree in? So my, my MFA is in sculpture. Um, okay. And it was kind of a, the really great thing about LSU as well, was that it's very cross-disciplinary and it's very fluid. It was very fluid for me to cross between um, sculpture, ceramics, and paper making uh, in the print department because um, the print the paper making facilities is actually under the print department. Okay, and so I didn't realize that when I was like apply. I was wanting to do more sculptural work when I was applying to graduate schools, and it was also, you know, really challenging because. I had a background, my degree was in photography. I had a lot of photo-based work with some sculpture, some fi- could be considered, would be considered fiber work with like the dresses and wearable mm-hmm. stuff I had done, but I didn't like fit into any mm-hmm. box. I didn't fit into any specific, I'd done a little printmaking, but not much. And so I was like, 
I had like actually a really hard time trying to figure out where I to even apply to schools or how to go about it. Um, and so I was fortunate that they they saw some potential in me like to be <laughs> able to do this and um, and then offered me offered me a position there. Yeah. So uh, so what what happened? How did you gravitate towards sculpture? Um, so the thing that happened to me at LSU was that, you know, I really got enchanted by this, this landscape and this, like the culture down there. It was more, I mean, when we would travel, you know, out, outside of Baton Rouge, um, outside the capital city, and it, it seemed more like a d- different country than any other place I had been to in the United States. And so, Um, I started looking, you know, more at the plants and more at the landscape. And I started sort of, there's also like a lot of, um, there's a lot of industry mixed in down there, you know, and I started looking at some of the different impacts that the industry was having, like on the land, uh, and, you know, with the river systems, with the plants. Um, and, and then I, that kind of like, through my work with the community gardens in um through with the university because you could just they had these really large wonderful community gardens you could just apply and pay twenty dollars for a large plot for like all year Mm -hmm. and so and you can grow things almost all year round in louisiana so um so i started getting connected with some people in the horticulture department and um and my husband was a uh, had moved down after I was there for a semester and he was an avid fisherman and we loved to canoe together. And so I, I was trying to figure out ways I could alter my practice to be in the landscape more and to have more time, like not just cooped up in the paper studio or in my own studio there. Um, and so that's kind of, um, at the point where uh, I started developing this this five point practice that I've been using, um, you know, for the last ten years essentially, um, where I'm I'm looking at the landscape. Um, I guess I'll explain the five point practice is um, exploration, observation, research, interpretation, and conversation. And so this was like one of the biggest things that came out of my grad school experience because um, I really. Um, was trying to figure out like how how can I make work but also really have these visceral experiences out in nature um, and then express those through through the work that I make. Um, and so the first thing I was like, okay, well let's let's think about this exploration. So I want to go out. I want to see like these <clears throat> these landscapes through canoe through. Um, through walking, through hiking, through looking at at maps and imagery of like where I'm where I'm gonna be and where I'm gonna go, um, and so so doing those explorations and it was really difficult at first to to identify the plants because mm-hmm. everything looked the same to me at first. Like I had pictures, I had printed things off, and I was like really I was. I didn't get a smartphone until like 2013. So I didn't have just, I couldn't just like pull it up on my flip phone to look at pictures in the canoe. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but really just listening 
and hearing like the sounds of the water, the sounds of the paddle scraping against the boat, the sounds of just like the buoyancy of these, of these plants. And, um, and so that, that first part was like, was really important, um, and kind of leads into that second point of observation and recording that. And so, um, photography was, is still, and has been like an important part of my practice. I, I use the photographs I take to, um, reference when I'm making sculptures, I print them and put them in artist books that sort of bring another layer of context to the places that I've been, or I'll even print large format photographs sometimes, and they'll be part of the installation um, to give another layer of context. Um, And so I've done some sound recordings like out um, doing research and exploring. So um, you know, that going into like the third point, which is research. And so after I've been out into a place and sometimes, you know, simultaneously or before is like really looking at what is the ecology of this area? Um, What is the history of this area? How has it been altered? Has it been altered by man? Has it been altered by weather? Has it been altered by, you know, erosion, flooding, Um, just, um, you know, what are, uh, how has it changed over time? Um, and so looking at all of those, all of those aspects, um, will then inform the fourth point, which is interpretation. And that is really, um, making like AKA making art interpretation of all these things that I've experienced and, and researched and, um, and that's, you know, taking, you know, the, the plants and testing them, you know, and not all plants, you know, will be good for paper, but even if they're not good candidates for making paper with, like, they still can have some kind of conceptual implication or have a layer of meaning that, you know, can still be very important to the piece and the work. And it just gets, you know, mixed with some abacar or some cotton or linen or, or some other fiber that holds it, holds it together. Um, and then the fifth point is is really the most important one, and and that's conversation. And so the whole point of all of this is all of this labor and all of this information is you know how can how can I make objects and environments that really get people thinking or asking some questions about their own landscape or their own environment or the one that they're they're in at the moment. And also, you know, I think the conversation about just getting out more and get and having experiences in nature yourself is um, another sort of conversation point. I'd like to think that my work will will bring out um, in people. Um, And it's, you know, it started out with wanting to just work with um, invasive plant species and talk about how those are like impacting the environment. Um, but, you know, the more as my work progresses and grows, it's not necessarily about just invasive plant species anymore. It's, it's sort of just about different ecological phenomenons or um, native plants or just, you know, um, different environments in general. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> no, that's okay. So let's, let's uh, talk about some of your work. So was there, was there something at LSU, a plant, or what was your sort of first uh, implementation of this? Yeah, so um, so I think that it first started with uh, non-invasive plants. It, 
so the my first like really forte into into working with plants in graduate school was um, working with banana plants. And so I'd always like since undergrad, like fallen in love with Abaca because it's so easy to fall in love with. It's such a great, yeah. great help to work with. And I started noticing that in the fall, um, there's tons of people landscape with banana trees in Louisiana, but you cut them down in the fall. And so there was just like all these banana trees just cut down all over the place. And I was like, huh, I wonder what people are doing with all these banana trees and how, like, can I make paper out of that? Could I make abaca out of just like these banana trees that are all cut down in Louisiana or in Baton Rouge? And so I put a post on Craigslist that was like, looking for banana trees cut down. Please contact me if you'd like me to come haul your banana trees away. I got a lot of <laughs> a lot of inquiries back saying, yes, please come take my banana trees. Um, and it didn't make the banana trees that I was working with there didn't make abaca. I also wasn't processing it in the same way. I wasn't just stripping it all the way down to the inner uh, bast fiber. Um, I was just chopping it up and just processing the whole um, petiole, um, uh-huh. the trunk uh, petiole of the of the plant. Um, and so it made a beautiful a beautiful paper um, that was strong, but not the the same as as abaca. So um, so from there, I started noticing the university is surrounded. They ha- there's three large. Um, well, two large lakes and then one smaller lake that are on the university campus or like right outside the university campus. And I started noticing the water hyacinth was in the Atchafalaya Basin. And when we would go in canoe, you know, between what we saw in like February to what we would see in um, April or May was amazing. Like the there would be just a handful of water hyacinth plants and then when we would go back again, the entire bayou was co- covered. It was like a carpet of water hyacinth, but it was beautiful because they were flowering these amazing purple blossoms. So it was like this green and purple carpet. But at the same time, it's like they're also like choking out the oxygen from the fish and the alligators and the different other different plants under the water. They're blocking the sun. Um, and so that was the, the, the like aha plant where I was like, okay, I want to like, see what I can do with this plant. Um, and then the second one that I noticed is when we started going out to the Manchac, um, swamp, um, which is in the opposite direction of the Atchafalaya Basin. Um, I started noticing alligator weed being all over the edges of the bayou, uh, or, or the swamp. And so I kind of like gravitated to those two um, plants because I wanted to kind of one, I was really interested in being in the water and boating and canoeing and sort of seeing the landscape in that way, because so much of it is water down there. Um, And then also like these two plants seem to have, I mean, they had a visual impact that I knew. I I mean, I could see like I could, I I was aware of it, you know how it's changed, seeing the change in the landscape through that. Um, and there are some photographs. Um, the, the body of this work is called 8,000 Daughters Woven into Bayou Braids. And so that um, one single water hyacinth plant, um, they 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 grow, th- it's rhizomatic, so it's they are all connected from underneath. But one plant can have up to 8,000 daughters. Oh, wow. And so it's like an amazing plant, but I mean, it can just like decimate certain waterways and, and areas. And so um, 
And the thing about it too is, you know, I also um, took some of the water hyacinth plants and I uh, I made these like water tanks in a, in a gallery and I just wanted to like see what, you know, what happens if I, if I don't pulp them, if I just take all, cause I was basically, I'd had like a rake that, you know, a garden rake that had the handle chopped off and I was just like scraping them out and I would put them in these big, I don't know how many gallon, you know, Rubbermaid bins in the canoe and then take them back to the studio, chop it up, boil it, make it into pulp. Um, but one day I was like, well, let's just see what happens if I just put them in water in this tank and, and just let them grow. See what happens if they just grow in this, in this environment, which uh-huh. wasn't brackish. So I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Um, but since I had done, they made these like tables that just had plastic on the bottom, you could see there was all of these baby crawfish and all these little insects in this whole world of like mm-hmm. ecology and life that was living in the roots of just this like 10 plants I'd stuck in there. And then after two days, like 30 fireflies hatched. Oh, wow. So they were just like fireflies, like flying around in the the upstairs sculpture gallery and like around Um, the hallways. I was like, that's kind of amazing. Um, So so it kind of also like changed my perspective a little bit of being like, get rid of all these invasive plants. They're terrible. They're awful Mm -hmm. to like, you know, they also are like housing this whole world of life too. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like this delicate balance, I guess. Right. Wow. Okay. So, um, well, let's just fast forward to your culminating MFA exhibit or yeah. So, uh, so what I ended up making, um, was a large installation of sculptures. Uh, I was trying to kind of mimic, I wanted the viewer to be in the position of like the native plants and the fish that were like in the bayous that were being choked out by these plants. And so I ended up doing like a hybrid form, um, that was sort of like the petal shape of a water hyacinth plant, but the elongated stringy lines of the alligator weed. And so I made a lot of these, um, wire, us and steel, they were steel. Um, so what I really like to work with is, um, steel filler rod for welding. And I use that as like, cause it's a, it's a three foot length. It's cut. I mean, it's you, you're starting out with something that's standard when you're working with repetition is, is nice. Um, and so I use that in a lot of my work um, for building uh, for building forms. And so I just I would just like anywhere that I went, essentially, I had like a tube of why a tube of steel filler rod and we would go canoeing and I would just bend wire. I would bend the forms in the boat. We'd go to like to the beach or something. I would just bend the forms like I was just like months and months of, you know, like bending these forms and then bracing them um, together into these larger sculptures and then making all the paper and then covering it. Um, so it was a combination of that. And then also, um, I did a large series of, um, pulp paintings of the bayous that I canoed using, uh, aerial, uh, maps from just like uh-huh. Google Earth, I think, or satellite images. Um, and the thing about water hyacinth pulp that's, I found really striking and amazing is that it's, it turns like a super dark brown black when you mm-hmm. cook the fiber down. Mm-hmm. And so um, some of my printmaking 
um, peers were like, it's like a litho black. And I was like, I don't really know what that means, but cool. <laughs> uh, but it turns this like almost like has a slight iridescence to it. Um, it's a very, it's, it's very weak. It breaks very easily. Um, it's uh -huh. not a strong, there's no fold strength. You fold it once and it breaks in half. Um, but as a pulp painting pulp, it worked very well. And the color was just very striking. Um, so there was, um, that was an element. Uh, I think all of the pulp paintings together made up like a 30 foot piece. Um, they were individually, uh, two foot by eight foot, mm. um, drawings. And then, um, like I mentioned earlier, I was kind of working in between the sculpt, uh, the ceramics department too. Um, I had, I'd learned about, um, paper clay and about, um, dipping, uh, organic materials into into slip essentially um, um, paper clay slip and so I had I'd done some work where I was dipping um, water hyacinth leaves into clay and then firing them and burning them out so you just have this gesture of the sort of dried up um, leaf um, so that was an aspect um, of the show and then I had a um, a large format book of um, photography that was um, landscape photographs and uh, and then text on um, the history of the um, plants, uh, water hyacinth and alligator weed that were, um, the text was a watermark. Um, so it was um, laser wow. cut, um, laser cut um, sandblasting material, uh, right. which I had learned that, um, learned about that material from uh, Roberto Menino. Um, I had uh, gotten a travel grant while I was in graduate school to um, study and visit some historic uh, paper mills in um, around Italy, and and then I spent a few days working with Roberto in his studio in Rome um, in 2011. Um, so that was an amazing ah. experience as well. Cool. And so how? And the book was I think about 24 by 32. Uh, just the it was a very large format book. The photographs and the and the watermarks in the book. So it was like a very like a there was a custom table we built and then it was um like a nice gesture to see people like turning these super large um pages right and the how many watermark pages were there there were four okay. um and so the watermark pages were also 24 by um yeah they were yeah i'm trying to think remember the size of my <laughs> duckle i think it's 24 23 by 34 somewhere around there um yeah, and yeah. then the um so the watermarks they were two there was just two full watermark um texts and then i repeated those um twice in the book i believe like okay. after i've looked, i haven't looked at it in a long time and actually i never documented that book very well i don't i have like a couple pictures of it on my website where it's just like open on a table um but um but it was really nice to like incorporate the text in that way because it was basically you know text about how the plant was introduced where it's needed, where it's actually comes from and how the impact that it's having um oh there was actually three watermarks sorry and then there was another one that just said eight thousand dollars woven into bayou braids over and over again so there was actually three watermarks <laughs> well yeah and i can envision turning the page and lifting it and seeing the light illuminate the watermark yeah and i did also do a sheet of the black um mm -hmm. hyacinth paper mixed with I think I mixed it with like a little bit of avocado to give it more strength so you could also read 
the text because it was on top of a black sheet right. of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely more visible, like when you're when you're lifting it. Right, right. And listeners, I interviewed Roberto Menino just a couple of months ago on this series. So you can go back and listen to my podcast interview with him. Um, cool. So so what happened after graduate school? And you mentioned that you already had a valley beater. Where 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 was that during this time? Did you take it to school with you or? No, where, it was in, in storage. Um, okay. In St. Louis, yeah. So my husband... And his father, they have a sculpture studio called Zymo, Z-Y-M-O Sculpture Studio here in St. Louis. Um, And so um, they do all kinds of crazy things from like trade show displays to custom awards to, um, you know, anything an advertising agency can imagine. They want to build and, you know, other things for like schools and museums and like they did a giant train for a a school in Texas or something like it's just a lot of interesting things that they make at their sculpture studio. And that is where um, my beater was while I was um, at school. And then that was also um, that family business is also why uh, we moved back to St. Louis um, after I was done with graduate school. Um, So um, yeah, so we finished, I mean, I finished in in May and then we moved back to St. Louis in June. And I thought, you know, I'm going to come to St. Louis and get a teaching job at one of these universities that's here. And it's very difficult to get a university teaching job, um, especially when you have, um, I don't know, again, going back to like this, the same kind of issues I was having with applying to grad schools is kind of like what I had when I was applying for like teaching jobs, because I, I do a lot of things, but they're in a lot of disparate departments. <laughs> um, right. So it's like, yeah, I could teach advanced Photoshop and I could also teach um, paper making and I could also teach 3D design and I could, but I probably don't want to teach drawing. So it's like um, I was adjuncting at a a bunch of different, like four different universities when I came back from St. Louis. I mean, when I came back to St. Louis and um, got my studios reset back up at at Zymo and then uh, I was also doing uh, freelance work for for Bruton Strobe Studios again. So these are like a lot of little things I was like piecing together um, for like jobs and income. And, and then um, and then I uh, I I started applying for residencies. I I just you know, it's I had kind of figured out this five point um, practice that that we had discussed earlier. And uh-huh. I wanted to like apply that to other places. And so it was kind of like, I have this like system that I kind of repeat, but it's different every time I go to a different place or every time I'm exploring like a different plant or a different region. And so, so I just started applying to a bunch of residencies and I started getting them. And so I, I've been super grateful and fortunate um, that, you know, over, you know, for, you know, from 2013 is when I, I did my very first residency um, at uh, Monomoy Island. Um, it was a an amazing program through um, this organization that doesn't exist anymore called Colorado Art Ranch and the um, Aldo Leopold um, Foundation in, I think it's in Wyoming. Okay. Um, 
And so they came together to create this program to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act. And so they ran this residency, I believe it was six different biomes around the country. Um, and in Puerto Rico um, was like the rainforest biome. But I got selected for the um, the the sea biome, like so for the ocean sea biome. Explain and- what a biome, what does that mean? Oh, a biome is just like the ecology, the region of the okay. world, the the landscape. The so there was a desert, uh, rainforest, um, ocean. Um, I there was, um, I guess it, they would consider it like rivers and lakes. One was in the boundary waters, like so. It's it's basically the ecosystem, the ecology, the the general like landscape of the. What are the qualities of the the different um, the land, the water? Right. Um, and the plants and how those that all they all interact together would be a different the difference. So when you when you applied, did you already have a project in mind or was it um, more organic than that? Um, to be honest, I don't remember exactly okay. the application because so many applications are different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe that I did have an idea. I I think I talked about wanting to. Um, work with different plants. I had like a a general, like, what do you think you're going to do while you're here? And so I think I did talk about wanting to, um, to work with the, um, the biologists and botanists and, and study and look at different, um, the way that different plants interacted, um, on the island. Um, and those, where was this island? Um, Monomo Island is off, uh, the coast of Cape Cod. So it's uh, Chatham, uh, is the the town that it's sort of like connected to? You can walk out to the island in in low tide, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the the most amazing thing I think about that experience was, you know, I I'd always been interested in science, and I got even more so um, like when I was in graduate school working with different uh, people in different departments and um, in the in the biology department and the horticulture department at LSU. Um, and I think that's what's always drawn me into papermaking too. And photography was just like working with the chemistry, the alchemy, mm-hmm. like how you can change the state of different things and the reactions of different things. And it's kind of like what I've been kind of geeking out on a little bit with learning about natural dyes now too. Um, but um, I would never have the opportunity to like apply to be um, a scientific intern with a national park or with, you know, and so, but I got to do that, like right, right. through this residency, because it was with the the partnership, there was these two organizations, but then there was also the partnership with national park services, land BLM, Bureau of Land Management, whatever like agency was, you know, dominant in the, the region that they were hosting the residency. And so, and so we did things like the, the main part, the main thing that they study on Monomoy Island is the turn population. And so it's a, um, they're protected turns and they protect the, the common turn because there's a, um, I guess, a very limited number of roseate turns. They're endangered. And so roseate turns will only nest and migrate in large colonies of common turns. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so one of the things that we did when I was there is, we went around and plotted to the different plots of turns and we tagged birds. We found little baby chicks and like 
put, you know, things around their little feet. And then we like collected and tagged. Um, oh, now I'm blanking on, on the, um, the crustacean, the super old, like dinosaur crabs that are in the ocean. Um, it'll come to me later probably. Um, so, but just like doing different, different activities like that, where it's like, I would never have gotten that, you know, that opportunity. And we would camp on the beach, um, with the, the interns that were there for the, for the summer. Um, and so it was, uh, it was really, really interesting. And I, that's where I also discovered this, um, seaweed codium for which is uh dead man's fingers. Uh, but it is, it's super invasive. Um, but you can process it in a blender and it, it reacts just like Abaca. Like it shrinks up. It's oh. super translucent. It's like, it was kind of amazing, um, to work with, with that, um, being there. Um, because I, you know, I bring a travel kit of like a bin or maybe not even a bin. I might just buy one there, like a dish tub there, but right. I was my, my wearing bar blender, a couple mold, small molds and decals, cut up felt, um, and a brayer, <laughs> kind of like the things in my kit just formation aid, um, too. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so that was like, that kind of like kicked off my, like I was on Monomoy Island and I got cell phone reception and like got a call that I had been accepted for a residency in New Orleans, like the next year for five mm-hmm. weeks. And then, you know, I've, I've just been really lucky to sort of like dot around the country, you know, between 2013 and, uh, 2018 really. This episode of Paper Talk is sponsored by the Redcliffe Paper Retreat, an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in late August. Enjoy a peaceful, creative week in the tiny hamlet of Redcliffe, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2023 retreat theme is paper panels. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, cut, folded, stitched, and assembled in a variety of ways to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com backslash red dash cliff dash paper dash retreat are you actually making work during the residencies or more doing test pieces um mostly test pieces so the first thing that i do is i i bring papers and i make a new sketchbook for every residency or place that i'm going to be at for a month or a few weeks at a time and then that book I have, and then it's like a record of all the research that I do, site drawings um, mm. and paper samples. And um, sometimes I uh, I got a little, I have a little tiny like travel printer, sometimes actually like print photos that I've taken okay. and tape in there, glue in yeah. there. And so, so I have that and then um, I'll usually do... Um, do testing and then maybe create some sculptures, but a lot of it is, is, yeah, is, is testing photography. 
Um, it also kind of depends. Like I had done a residency at the Tides Institute in Eastport, Maine, and I had the opportunity to work with um, with an etching press. Um, and so I'd, I'd done a little printmaking in grad school, and um, but I really took that opportunity and um, I'd brought papers with me to print on because I knew I was going to have that access. Right. And I started doing a bunch of um, uh, monoprints of just seaweed and things like that. So in that residency, I did make a lot of work while I was there, but um, also typically like the experiences that I've had is like, I'll do a residency, I'll get, I'll have this like, you know, I'll be so stimulated and have all these ideas and all of this, sometimes material, I will ship material home usually a lot of times. Um, and then I'll spend the next six months to eight months to a year sometimes just like making all of the things that I thought about or have come like reflecting back on the experience of that place there. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of worked, has worked like that for me where I'm, you know, doing some things at a residency, but then really it comes back and kind of fuels my studio practice for, for the next few months. Right. Right. And then I'm curious, yeah, how are you generating where you're showing the work? Because I know the conversation is important. We also talk, I also think you have really interesting conversations during the research part, right? With the scientists and the other people. Yeah. And there's, I think, you know, art and science are the same, right? With the, the creativity yeah. interest and, oh, how did that happen? And what happens when I do this? So, yeah. So let's move to talking about a couple of more recent installations you've done. I don't even know if they're always <laughs> called installations, sculpture. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. love that you, you make a book usually, I think with a lot yeah. of these. So let's talk about plant transformations, that project. Yeah. So that project was really fun. Um, and that, uh, so that was a large format book that I made, um, in collaboration with the Missouri Botanical Gardens. And that project came about, um, there was, a, a new curator who is amazing, uh, Nezhka Pfeiffer, uh, who, works for the Missouri Botanical Gardens and the Sachs Museum. So the Sachs Museum is actually a, a pretty new museum. So they they had their one year anniversary mm. in 2019. And so she had come on, I guess, in 2018 um, when they first opened. It was a, a renovated historic building on the garden um, grounds that um, that they turned into a museum after they had receive some funding for that project. Mm. And so, um, so she had heard about me or someone had recommended, um, me to, um, to be part of the, the anniversary show was, was themed paper. And so mm -hmm. she, um, she got in touch with me a year prior. I guess she hadn't been there that long now that I think about it. Cause really, <clears throat> she got in touch with me the summer of 2018. So she knew like the first year anniversary will be the, the paper. Um, right. Oh yeah. Cause it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just the, the, you know, ethnobotanical, um, you know, ethnobotany aspect of paper and, and plants. And, um, and so, um, so she was like, you know, whatever she's like, I, you know, I think your work is really great and I think it would be a good fit. And, you know, if there's, 
um, she was really interested in uh, the large um, lotus sculptures that I had previously uh, made. And I believe I made those in 2016. Um, and so, but she was like, I really would like, you know, you also to do something like site specific, like something specific for the, for the show as well. Um, and so I had always wanted to, it had kind of like been on my bucket list to like try to work, get in to work with some of the gardeners and horticultural staff at, at the botanical garden. Yeah. Um, so she like made those connections for me. And I met with a number of the the horticulture staff and um, I walked the grounds and photographed like different plants in the <clears throat> summer that I thought would be good candidates for making paper. Because what I decided is that I wanted to originally I wanted to like make a book that had paper samples from each of I think there's like 13 or 17 like different gardens in the garden. There's the Japanese garden, the Chinese garden, the Bavarian garden, the native garden, the Kemper center. Um, but you know, that became like a, maybe a little bit too ambitious yeah. <laughs> to like have so many papers from so many of the different. So I, um, <clears throat> so I ended up photographing, I sent them a PDF, PDF and they essentially like I had for, from September until like November, uh, the end of November, I would go weekly or biweekly and they would have like, I had a drop point <laughs> that they would, when they were clearing beds out for the fall, they would take the plants and they would put them in this spot. And then we would take a truck and then fill the back of the truck. And they also gave me like free range of their giant compost bin, like wow. compost pile, which is like the size of a small building. And yeah. they were like, you just take whatever you want out of there. <laughs> um, so, so I started working on that project um in uh like september and i was just getting different plant species and then that just like sorting them and separating them and then i was gonna and then i let them ret um for the winter uh-huh um and so uh they were retting um and then um as also uh when i became pregnant so i was processing like having all these this project going on and processing the different stages um, of these plants. Um, I think, I can't remember the exact, I think I ended up with uh, 25 or 24 different um, plants um, to sample and make sample pages out. Um, and I wanted this to be, again, like an experiential, like large format book. So I, again, I was using that 23 by 32-ish <laughs> mold that I have. Um so are you make, actually pulling sheets or are you pouring that? I'm size? pouring. Yeah. yeah. So the, I use a deckle box with those. Yeah. I'm not, I don't, uh, it uses less water and mm -hmm. it's less like hard on my back. And then also oh, yeah. I find that when I, so I use a deckle box and then a sheet of heavy duty plastic. And then it also allows me to like keep the sheets consistent. Yeah. Um, so I'm not having to like figure out how much pulp I need to add, how slow I'm pulling up. And um, so it's um, I find at that scale, um, it's definitely um, easier for me to just use a to use a deckle box. Right. Um, and so um, so that uh, so another aspect of that book that was really interesting uh, was that I got to. Um, so the Missouri Botanical Gardens has, I think, the one of the it's either the second or the fifth largest um, herbarium specimen in the world. And so they have collections of plants, pressings from mm -hmm. 
the 1800s on, um, and, or maybe even earlier than that. And, um, and they had just finished this huge project in Bolivia that they'd been working on for, I think, 10 or 20 years, um, cataloging and categorizing different plants there. And the, one of the things I wanted to highlight in this book was one, um, plants, how plants can be made into paper and the, the variety of different papers you can create from plants, texture, color, um, weight, um, you know, feel translucency. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also like, I wanted to highlight like the, how the botanical gardens is so much more than just a garden because they have this global mission and they do research all over the world, trying to like find new plants and save plants and catalog them and categorize them and, you know, doing all of this, this research. Um, and so, I got to, they had additional specimens. So they actually gave me some of the, some of the herbarian specimens from that Bolivia project that I could embed into sheets of paper and have in the, in the book as like a section. Um, uh, and then so you mean like they had five of this leaf. So you got, yeah. Those, yeah. So they were like, stuff. you can yeah. have this one or yeah. you can have, yeah. Like they had, they had oh. sent back like you know, extras. And so they right. said, they were like, we have a lot of these, so you can, have, <laughs> you can have some. Um, but I got to go into like the, you know, into their offices and they would like, they spread everything out and we got to like go through. And so I got to like, actually like pick and choose like, which like, oh, that's a really beautiful shape or, you know, the different types of, um, different types of plants. So, um, and then to see like all of the news, cause they send everything still just in newspaper. And so I have like this whole collection of like these, this Bolivian newspapers, like with the news on them, you know, <laughs> um, which I didn't put in the book, but I just thought was like neat to have. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and then, um, the third aspect of the book that I wanted to highlight, um, was the, um, the ethnobotanical research that they do. So there's, um, James Lucas, um, is a ethnobotanist and also a papermaker. Um, and he, he does a lot of research um, into papers um, that were used for origami all over the world. So he had been traveling um, in Vietnam and other parts of Asia um, and had been collecting all of these um, all of these origami papers. And so he gave me a sampling of, of some of the papers that he had collected from around the world. And so those papers also got sewn into, um, sewn into the book. So there was like these three facets of the garden that I was trying to like highlight in this, um, in this project. Okay. And he sounds really interesting. Like someone I should have on the show. Um, yeah. does he work at the garden? He, um, so he is a, I think he's a PhD candidate at, um, Washington university. Okay. And, um, he also, he gave a lecture at the most recent, um, NAFA conference, um, which I have not listened to yet, but I have the link of the recording. Right. <laughs> um, and he also has, uh, he helped edit the, um, the chapter in the the recent publication, um, Paper in Color, that Radapandi edited. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a chapter on there on um, paper making in Vietnam, and um, and he also contributed to that. So definitely, he I would he's definitely someone I would reach out to. Yeah, um, cool, cool, cool. Okay, um, and then I wanted to just touch on, you know, your work is so related to your life, and I'm. I don't know that you've done anything related to your 
your being a mother, maybe. But I know just prior or when you were pregnant, your brother passed away and you made a beautiful tribute to him through art. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so my brother passed away in, um, in 2017 in November, um, it was tragic. Um, he was, um, a victim of the opioid crisis. Um, so he, he died of a fentanyl, um, heroin overdose. Um, we had been struggling with him and he had been struggling for years, um, Uh, with our family knowing the full extent of his addiction and problems, um, it had been about a year and a half that we had been trying to work with him and, you know, trying to get him help um, unsuccessfully, um, obviously. Um, So that was very, uh, I kind of like took a it was just a very difficult time, essentially, sure. like the end of 2017, you know, uh, up until I got pregnant, um, to be honest, or around uh, that time. I mean, it's still difficult. It, yeah. the grief is ongoing. Um, yeah. It's an ongoing process, I think, eternally. I don't think you I don't think grief ever completely dissolves um, mm-hmm. in my experience thus far. <laughs> um, so um jeremy was uh <laughs> he uh he was a graffiti artist he was definitely like you know we were skater punk kids when we were teenagers it was you know um he he lived on the outskirts you know he was definitely um could be a troublemaker a lot of fun um always wanted to kind of be an artist but wasn't an artist but was an artist kind of thing um and so he he really like started getting into graffiti and tagging and you know maybe like in 10 years ago or whatever so his his tag was Christo um and you you know you could find it all around the city like you'd see buildings and street signs and little things like that everywhere but one of the things like he always I mean, he also did like just a lot of stuff on paper, like with markers and and drawing and and things like that. And you know, he would always talk about like wanting to have an art show, like wanting to do like this something on like Cherokee Street, which is like an art district here in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. And, um, and I, you know, I was I was thinking about that, and I just had spent. I mean, I. I was trying to process, I was trying to figure out how to process everything that had happened. And I was trying to process it in my own way. And, and I'd started processing it. It was, you know, it was really unfortunate in this also like on another level, like i would Every year I'd had a had been having a Kozo harvest because I, I have some Kozo paper mulberry trees in, in the back of the studio at Zyme um that I was talking about earlier. And um and so I found about out about his passing like during the Kozo harvest. Like my dad showed up and I thought, oh, you're just here to right. scrape some bark. Mm-hmm. I'll with the Kozo harvest. But um he actually had was coming to tell me that. And my brother had died and mm. he had just come from identifying his body. Mm. And so, and so from, 
I haven't been able to do a Kozo harvest like since then, because it's, it's kind of like traumatic a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's still there. I've been cutting the trees down and just doing it myself or like with one or two friends, but um, I used to have like a big chili party and like, I just, um, I don't know that I'll be able to do that again. Uh, Maybe in 10 years or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I spent, you know, the, my friends and family like stayed and continued to cut the, cut the branches down and strip them and um, put them in buckets of water. And so I had all of these buckets of, Kozo to scrape. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, after his service, they, you know, we did things pretty quickly. Um, After he passed, it was, you know, a week before we had his service. And then, um, and then I just started going to the studio and just like scraping Kozo and scraping Mm -hmm. Kozo and scraping Mm -hmm. Kozo and trying to like process everything that had, had happened. And then, um, you know, and then I just, put that a letter dry out. And then I just stored that fiber away. And then I started, you know, thinking about that fiber and I started thinking about what's embedded in it and all my feelings. And, um, I went to a sort of a, I applied to go to this women's retreat, um, thing. It's a program. It's called mapping meeting. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you, if you look it up, it's, um, so they, you can apply to go, they do it, I think every two years and it's um, 12 women artists that get together and present their artwork and workshop things. And, um, it's always in like a remote, um, yeah. wilderness location usually. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, I thought, you know, I think this is what I need. I think I need to go to this thing. And so I, I applied and I was accepted and we, we, I went to Montana outside of like maybe a couple hours out of outside of Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, that was in the summer of, uh, 2018. And I, um, I, I, you know, I talked about wanting to, to process my grief through making some work and, you know, talking about some of these different ideas I had and, um, one of the things I was thinking about was I have, um, my brother had seven cents in his pocket when they found him. And so I have those seven pennies. Um, and I was, you know, I was like thinking about, you know, I want to do something with these pennies. And then I started thinking about scents, like smell scents and olfactory experiences and how different things I would smell would just like bring back memories of when we were kids and things mm-hmm. to thinking about that way. So I was like, I want to do something that's like seven cents and seven cents. And, and so I kind of like worked through some of these ideas, um, when I was at this mapping meaning workshop and also did some like really fun, just, you know, teaching people how to make paper. Like I did a paper making and book making workshop with, with the, the women that were there and, mm-hmm. and we did some other, other things. It was, mm-hmm. um, it was a really great, um, experience. I made a lot of really good connections. Um, so I came back from that um, and there was um, another gallery in St. Louis, um, Reese Gallery, and Ruth Reese is the woman who runs that. And I met her um, through my residency at Craft Alliance here in St. Louis. And, you know, we had been talking about me having an exhibition at her gallery. Mm-hmm. And so I had a studio visit with her um, and I wasn't planning on this work like being for like a gallery, but 
um, when we had our studio visit, I like, I had already been kind of thinking about it and making some like test pieces, like making some work relating to, to what I was thinking about with my brother. And, uh, you know, I just ran, I was like, I mean, I could make this for the show in February. I was like, I, cause this was in like September or mm-hmm. so right. there was like an overlap. I was working between like the project with the botanical garden, like everything was like sorted and reading. And then I shifted over to like making this work about my brother in between and then went back to working, doing the botanical garden book after in like March. And so, um, and so I was, you know, she was very receptive and she was, it was amazing. And she was like, I think that this could be really beautiful and I trust you. And I, I think, you know, whatever you decide to make, if you get halfway through it and you decide I can't do this or I don't want to, or then we can, you can shift and make something else for the show. Um, but I just was, I thought, you know, this, if I can talk to some of his friends and get some of the things that he's made and it could be a collaborative exhibition between the two of us, I think it would be really beautiful and honor him and really help me. And so, um, and it did because I like some of the, the text panels that I made for that show is, um, you know, I, there's, there's a series is called Dear Jeremy. And I, you know, I, I made these big sheets of Abaca and then I just made this, you know, really fine cotton. And I just wrote letters to him in cursive, completely illegible. Um, and, and I was just talking to him, you know, and so that was, you know, a big part of it for me. And then I thought they dried really beautifully and I liked them just, you know, for their other property, you know, like visually. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, he had really deep blue eyes and I, I feel like there's something about indigo that just is emotive and is mm. like beautiful, but kind of sad. And I, so I was like working with um, different and I also just, um, wanted to experiment with more indigo too in the studio. So I started doing these like resist um, indigo dipped pieces. And, um, and then I made a big, uh, a large format book that just had different indigo and um, some of his drawings in it. And, um, and then the olfactory piece was um, seven Kozo vessels, hollow um, forms that I made with a, sand no rice rice inside a pantyhose and then covered them with uh, kozo and then pulled it out and um and so those were you know it was that same kozo that i was scraping you know when he when i was sort of grieving Mm -hmm. initially Mm -hmm. um and then i had worked with a friend of mine um is an herbalist and um she has her own company doing um extractions and um scents and different herbal uh tinctures and remedies and um she worked with me to to create different scents using essential oils that were soaked that I soaked in um in indigo dyed coso that was inside the vessels so you could they were kind of placed on the wall where it was kind of high, high nose height and you could just like stick your nose in and mm. and smell it. um so yeah i mean it was a it was a very powerful um body of work for me and very different than a lot of the work that I make, but it was like necessary. And I, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how it like 
I mean, it relates visually just because it looks like my work, I guess, I mean, you know, and, um, but um, it definitely like started making me question like about different ways I could work and different, you know, how much of myself do I want to put out there? You know? Right, right, right. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, it just gives another layer. You have a great page on your website about the show. And I could tell that a lot of people attended it. Um, there's a short video clip and yeah, but hearing you talk about it adds another layer. Thank you. Um, so what are you working on now? Um, so I, uh, I have one, um, commercial gallery that represents me, um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So it's, uh, Ann Connolly Fine Art. Um, they're really great to work with. I've been working with them since I think 2013, 2000, or no, 2014, I think. Um, it was a connection I made um, in grad school. Um, and so um, I just had a show with them in October. Um, and that show was called Indigo and Ochre. And that part of that work um, was, you know, not necessarily like about a specific place, but really um, just sculptural forms I'd been thinking about and some like exploring some different um, like Louisiana plant forms um, that I'd, you know, I'd had pictures of and I have some spider lily plants that I've like actually grow still that we dug up from uh, when I was in grad school that still bloom every year. And, um, and so I really was just like trying to get back into um, the studio and making more sculpture because, um, like I, I work full time and I have a three-year-old daughter and, you know, it gets a little bit difficult sometimes to like, you know, stay up and get like, come downstairs and work in my, my studio is in my house now after, you know, she goes to bed. And, uh, so like, but scheduling, I scheduled that exhibition in like June. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this for October. Um, and so I did some large sculptures, um, them and um I was really happy with how everything turned out I had some switch grass forms and mm-hmm. some uh um some I like to make these sort of like abstract large like circular um forms that sort of mimic like what I think of like ocean currents or waves underwater um, they're not like super conceptually heavy, but I think they're just beautiful and I enjoy making them. So, um, so I made some of those forms for them. Um, and then I've kind of like been on a little bit of a hiatus because I've, um, I've been sick a lot this fall after, <laughs> before and after then. Um, but in, uh, t- this year I am going to be starting a project, another project for the Sachs Museum, um, they're doing an exhibition on corn and maize um, in 2024. And so um, Nezhka, um, the curator, uh, invited me to um, actually after the first of the year. And um, they are um, growing two different types of corn for me at the garden to work with. Oh. Um, so they're they're going to they have a, a plot set up. So they're growing corn for me this uh, summer and then I'll get it har- I'll harvest it or they'll harvest it for me um, in the fall and then I'll have that fiber to work with. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I'll probably do some kind of sculptural 
installation, but I'm also thinking about like experimenting with some rubber molds and doing some like casting maybe because there is some funding and, you know, she, the curator is very open to like, I mean, I had an idea about just doing maybe some like, you know, more like stocky forms like you can see behind me a little bit here or, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, she's like, but if you want to try like something new, do something, you know, you know, we, I can, I have some funding, we, you know, we can, you know, pay for some materials and things. If there's something you want to experiment with, you know, like use this opportunity. So, um, and then I also thought, you know, since that is a very, I liked the, that when I made the book uh, for the museum, I liked the interactive aspect of it because people could like come in. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was crazy. It was like 20,000 visitors or something like wow. that to the museum that while that book was open, I was like, even if just like two, t- what, 10% of people looked at it, it was 2000 people that turned those pages, wow. book, yeah. you know? Um, so I might try to do some, some other type of installation that might be a little bit more interactive. I'm not sure. Um, right. Right. But, um, but there's that. And I'm really excited. I've just been invited to serve on the board of hand paper making magazine. So mm. I'll be starting that in the new year. Um, so those are kind of like the two, I guess, paper related things I have right. on the horizon. Yeah, cool. Well, since you mentioned the funding and I'm curious whether um, with these projects you do, is there ever funding for you and your time rolled into them or is it more uh, um, for materials and projects or do these places ever purchase your work? Like that big book. Oh. Yeah. I wish they would purchase that big book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually, I just got it back from okay. uh, Mid Atlantic because it was in a, an exhibition okay. there uh, recently. But um, usually it's just materials or yeah. shipping. Like the for the paper show at the Botanical Gardens, the... Um, the lo- large large lotus sculptures were actually at the commercial gallery in Baton Rouge, and so the gal the museum paid, you know, um, for my husband to like rent a U-Haul and drive down and pick them up. Right. He got to go on a fishing trip too while he, right. <laughs> when he went down, but um, but he like they paid for all the costs for like transporting that. Um, some, I mean usually it ends up just being like shipping. It's different for like, you know, yeah. obviously the commercial gallery I show with like, they like that is, you know, I take the work there and it rarely comes back, you know, it just they gets, place it. Yeah. They, place it. They, they work with designers, they work mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. their clientele and, um, you know, that's great. And, um, and so it's usually like a slightly, like I take a slightly different approach, not drastically, um, but, a little bit to the work that I make to send a commercial gallery versus something that's for, you know, maybe a museum or a, a specific gallery. And with the residencies, you know, um, like I will try to like with the tides museum, when I got back and I started making work, I got in touch with them and I said, Hey, you know, I'm really excited about like this work that I'm making, you know, would you want to show it at the museum? Like mm-hmm. next year or whenever. And they were excited. They liked what they, yeah. you know, they I really we got we had a good relationship and um and yeah so they paid for like all the shipping and then they like hosted me like they um they didn't pay for my like airfare or anything but they did like pay for like my accommodations and everything when mm-hmm. I was there so it just kind of depends um yeah 
Yeah, no, I'm just curious because it seems there's not really any standard. No, there's not. <laughs> it's very different for each artist. Yeah, yeah. but for me yeah. too, a lot of it is like sometimes I I need like a little extra like motivation, you know, like sometimes I like overbook myself, but it's like other times it's like if I don't give myself that deadline or like book that thing, it's like I might just watch a movie and go to sleep. Yeah, right, you right. Know? No, it gives you an incentive to um, do the work. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I want to do it anyway, but sometimes it's just hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a deadline, right? Okay, let's uh, wrap up with your recommendations because you had some great ones. I love that you mentioned your little traveling kit earlier and you mentioned the wearing blender, right? Wearing? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. So it's a really great blender. Um, it is, I've had the same one. I'm a knock on wood, <laughs> you know, for mm, six years, seven years now, six or seven years. And I, the motor hasn't gone out. I mean, you can get a $20 blender, $30 blender, and it'll last you for a couple months and then it's going to burn yeah, out. Right. It's my experience or not even the duration of a residency <laughs> a month long, if you're using it for paper. And um, I do like try to not overload my blender anymore. You know, I keep yeah. that fiber to water ratio pretty um, good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that it's a, it's like a high powered, you know, motor and it's compact. Like it's a pretty, I mean, it's like a small bar one. So, yeah. so it fits well in a suitcase. <laughs> right. And then you also have a great outdoor propane burner for cooking plant fiber. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really important. And that was actually, um, so, um, I highly recommend, I, I don't know if the call will still be open when this airs, but the studio in the woods, it's an amazing residency program in new Orleans. Um, and I did, I participated in that in 2015, um, 2014 in 2014. And, um, they had a, a generous material stipend. And so mm-hmm. I bought one of these cookers with that material stipend that I'm st- and I'm still using it now. But if you get a good burner that a lot of times they're for beer brewing, home brewing, um, you can get your water boiling so much faster. It's like a little jet pack, like burner system. And, yeah. um, they're stainless. They they're large and they can support like because they're made for brewing beer. They're like made to support like a large amount of liquid. And so, um, like dovetailing into my next recommendation is like right. I can put a beer keg, which is what I use to cook a lot of my fibers in. Um, because uh, if I'm doing you know large format work or ne- making a lot of paper, like I'm I don't want to s- have to keep cooking pots and pots and pots. So. Um, so I've used, uh, I got a used keg. Um, I actually did this in grad school first and then used a cutter wheel on a grinder and cut the interior out. Um, and then when I came back to St. Louis, I did the same thing. Someone actually stole my keg from LSU outside. So I I was going to take it home with me, but somebody stole it. Um, so I just made another one and I've been using the same beer keg for, you know, the last nine, what is it? 2022. Yeah. Last nine, 10, nine years here. Um, so they, maybe if you have a picture of that setup, I'd love to post that. Oh yeah. I'm sure I probably do somewhere. Yeah. Cool. Um, the other thing that's nice about using a beer keg is that, um, 
if you're doing like even like a lot of test patches of different fibers and stuff, you can put them in, which goes into like my other uh, recommendation, which is paint strainer bags. You can right. cook them actually in paint strainer bags. And I like to use like the garden Velcro, like for tomato plants, you can do like a really tight Velcro around it instead of trying to like tie a knot. And then you can make sure it's like loose and not super packed. So the fiber can move around in there, but you can like cook different plants at the same time oh, yeah i actually smart. learned that from cecile webster <laughs> okay yeah she told chicago. me about that yeah cool. yeah in chicago oh i love that and then you mentioned you um you've gotten into natural dye materials and instructions and there's a link to maiwa.com i don't know yeah. if that's how you say it yeah I, yeah my or maywa i'm actually i think I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, yeah, they have uh, really great um, resources. Um, there's, there's, um, I think they have two different websites. One is for like more of their materials, and then one is like my way, my way teachable. I'll, I'll send you the other. There's, there's, they have two different websites. Um, but I've been ordering materials from them, and I took a really great. Um, it's like a ten week uh, natural dye course online mm-hmm. uh, last year. And so um, you sign up and then they send you like the whole kit of like materials and then you can like do it at your own pace because oh, cool. it's all, it's like through teachable.com I yeah. think is um, yeah. how they have it set up. Um, but you can do it. They only, re- they release them like one week at a time. So you can't like blow through the whole thing in like, unless you've, it's past the 10 weeks. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. But I, I like didn't start mine until late. Like I didn't start when like the class started, I started a little bit later, but they have like, um, it's the type of thing where it's like they do that. You get the pre-recording once a week, but then also once a week, they do like a Q and a online uh, and then uh-huh. a Facebook page, but they, you can get on the message board and like ask questions and then they, you know, they get on and respond to you, which was really great. Um, because even though I was like late to start it, I still like had some questions. Um, right. And then, you know, I was like, I know I didn't start with everybody else. So this like in the beginning, uh, cause I had some like Cal, I have really hard water here in St. Louis. And so I was like ah. different effects, which is fine. It's just like knowing like, okay, well things turn out this way because this is the water I have. I'm not trying to buy distilled water or like filter it or anything. I just know my effect, my colors will be shifted like this. Um, so I've really been, uh, enjoying, like I took what I learned, uh, that whole course was on fabric, like dyeing, um, cellulose and, um, protein fibers, uh, on fabric. So then I kind of like took that and then applied it to, um, paper, which was, um, I uh, applied and was accepted for the the most recent um, hand paper making portfolio that's going to come out. The language of color, um, mm. the all the the piece that I did for that portfolio was all using all natural dyes and like the techniques that I had learned from that natural dye course sort of applied to paper in pulp. And so, oh, cool! It's been yeah. fun, like yeah. learn about it. Um, but I'm still like not. T- you know, I'm still a novice. I'm still like very much like learning and I'm not, you know, like with color fastness and um, longevity, um, I'm still like using pigments in my steadfast, I know for like commercial work and like commissions and things like that. Right, right. And the di- and the reason you mentioned that, I think is because pigments are more stable, fast, stable and yeah. dyes tend to fade over time. So yeah, 
Oh, that and I guess it has I have, to be part of the concept. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, I have, uh, so in the, in January, I also have a, a few commission, a few commission um, sculptures that I'll be working on too. Um, that are oh. from like the, the, there are some pieces that people bought and they would like, like another set of them, like for like somebody really wanted the sculpture, but they want one that's like 10 inches bigger. So yeah, <laughs> um, I'm going to make that. <laughs> those, um, and are so those have the through the gallery or are they just, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. They're through the gallery. Through the gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, Megan, we had a few little zoom issues. I hope they won't pop up. Zoom is pretty reliable um, in the recording I find. So, uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful to yeah. hear about your work and I look forward to following you and seeing what, what develops. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Helen. It was, uh, it was fun talking to you. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called the Sunday paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season.